0: On this episode of the London Life Scene, we talk with Dr. Sarah Coakley about the nature of desire and how that is interrelated with the Trinity and gender, among other things. So we cover topics like what is desire, what does desire have to do with personhood, and human identity, what does it have to do with the Trinity, what does the Trinitarian ontology of desire look like, why is prayer, contemplation, and worship necessary for good theology? How does gender relate to desire? All, all these sorts of questions and topics are covered in the episode and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we want to do our thinking with particular virtues. So we've singled out things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful and confessionalism, which we hope to promote, which we hope to embody uh, both on the podcast and off of it, and to create an environment, a, a, almost an intellectual culture that breeds these sorts of virtues with others. So with that in mind, this episode is going to be lots of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really honored to introduce you all to Dr. Sarah Coakley, who until 2019, she was the Norris Hulse Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. And now currently, she's a research professor at Australian Catholic University and an honorary professor at the Lagos Institute at St. Andrews University. Now, earlier in her career, if you're not familiar with her, she had taught at Lancaster University, Oriel College, Oxford, and at Harvard Divinity School, where she was the, the Millingrod Chair of Divinity. I probably butchered how you pronounce that, but I'll pretend that I pronounced it right. Uh, and she, And she's got a ton, a wide interdisciplinary range as a systematic theologian, a philosopher of religion, and someone who works on the boundaries of various other disciplines, such as patristics, gender theory and science, and religion. Now, two of the most recent publications that she has that I've got with me that you can't see, even though I'm showing them up to the video here, uh, since you're listening on a podcast, is uh, her essay, or I guess her essay, God, Sexuality, and the Self, an essay on the Trinity, which is the first volume of her own systematic theology, and then the new asceticism, which is a set of essays on gender Power and Prayer. And she's currently actually working on the second volume of her systematic theology on sin, racism, and divine darkness. And I think, uh, number one, that's people are excited about the release of that, waiting for it. And number two, you've got a special way with titles. I think those are just tremendous. So before we jump into discussing these books today, I am curious— what is it that drew you initially to thinking about these topics that you're writing on to focusing on these specific things? I mean, there's a lot of things you could write and research on. What is it that drew you to this?
1: Well, let me mention two aspects. Um, the first is, as we're going to talk about later, that my whole approach to systematic theology is characterized by um, an insistence that we um, do our theological work in the transformative context of the activity of prayer and especially prayer of a relatively wordless or or simple gazing attentive sort. Um, I can explain that later, but I just want to say now that anyone engaged in, in that kind of prayer um, will become very conscious sooner rather than later of how, Uh, the spirit stirs the self um, and um, brings up issues of desire in the self, um, including, of course, very powerfully, often sexual desire. And this raises an enormous question about what desire is in human nature, how it relates us to God, um, and also how in this posture of prayer, one of the tasks over time is the kind of sorting of desires. Um, In other words, uh, placing them in in a kind of right relationship or order to each other in, in connection with the primary desire for God. So that's the first reason I was drawn to this. The second is the sort of point of cultural touchdown for that, in that I think we might all agree that we live in a Modern Western culture that is saturated with the stirring of desire through um, through the web and through visual media and and other other forms of exacerbation, um, especially through um, advertisement, um, and uh, the question here then is why do we tend to regard desire as primarily about sex um, in a post-Freudian Western culture? Um, Why do we not think more carefully about how other desires, um, including desires for power and fame and money, um, and then more basically for um, other physiological needs? um, uh, Why why are we so obsessed with the sexual dimension of desire? And uh, is that bad? Is it good? Uh, how How do we adjudicate that? And how do we relate it to our spiritual yearning. So that's a fairly short answer to um, a very big question. And other themes that I've already touched on there are going to come out, I think, in what you ask me next, probably. Yeah. So
0: you've, you've already mentioned the concept of desire. So maybe let's just start there with how do you want us to understand the way that you're using that word? What is your definition for desire?
1: Sure. Um, well, um, I let's start from a sort of ordinary language uh, position, <laughs> I think most people would um, would see desire as synonymous with longing or craving or yearning or or wanting. All right, um, but as I've just mentioned, um, in today's Western culture, often um, the word desire immediately evokes sexual desire. Um, for reasons, I think of cultural development in in the in the modern period. And what I'm trying to do in my definition is to bring all this back in relationship to God and to see desire as the um the sort of crucial clue woven into our fallen nature, <laughs> um, which actually is linking us back to God. It's, it's, that, it's that memory uh, of whence we come. Um, um, and therefore, to begin to start and draw from that, an idea that uh, we cannot keep sexual desire and uh, other desires, um, whether they be psychic or physical, in completely separate boxes. I think there's a there's a very strong tradition in in reformed Protestant thought, particularly, to Uh, completely disambiguate sexual desires from religious reflections. And this causes a great deal of problem, of course, with our management of the sexual arena of life. Um, So I regard desire as the most fundamental anthropological category, because if you think about it, um, desire can be either physical for the most basic needs of human life, um, just as, you know, warmth, warmth, food and drink, um, human contact, children are born with desire (laughs) uh, well before they have speech or well before they can make true volitional choices um, or intellectually work things out. Um, And desire also has this amazing bridge category because it it links our physiological needs with our deepest psychological and soulful needs. Um, and so it's a very malleable and rich category. Also, if you think about people who are um, sadly very disabled and can't speak, or people who are dying and can no longer speak, or who are demented, they still have desires. It's it it is a it is a is a, the deepest human category, in my view, and. Um, In my work, I've been doing a lot of tracing of how the notion of human desire has changed throughout the centuries, and is differently approached by different philosophers. I'm particularly interested, of course, in the notion of Eros in um, in Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy, which was then taken over by Platonizing Christians in the early period. Because the way that Plato thinks about desire already creates the link between the human and the divine realm or the realm of the forms. Um, In his famous discussion about beauty in the symposium, it is eros that provides the, as it were, projective yearning towards the form of the beautiful. Um, And in Plato, therefore, also desire is both uh, noetic, both intellectual and also Affective (laughs) and it can move again from the physiological to the highest psychic form. Um, When you get to the scholastic period in the West, I think the most uh, complex and rich account of desire probably comes in Thomas Aquinas, as you might expect, where he used actually several words for desire, but his analysis is a little different from Plato's in that he sees the notion of appetitus, appetite. (laughs) as fundamentally that yearning category in us that is the bridge between the physiological and the psychic. And then he clarifies the relationship between that appetite and uh, our actual wills by saying that our wills are the rational form of our appetite. And I think that's a, that's a rather clarifying way of thinking about um, the relationship between desire and will.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So I think at least, you know, I am I guess I'm proud of a, the broadly Reformed tradition. So I do think, at least even me, when I read certain patristic authors or when I hear of the primacy of desire, I definitely sometimes get uncomfortable because I'm not used to thinking about sexual desire as really something that we should channel toward God in some particular way. That seems really confusing and sometimes concerning, you know, just because the stuff that comes to your mind is usually negative when you think of those sort of things. So what does this sort of desire really have to do with my human identity and my personhood as an individual? It should should it really be the core of it? I mean, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas and these others. I think most people in the Reformed tradition want to value what he has to say, and they don't think of him or others as being linked to this sort of thinking.
1: Uh, but, he, but he is, because he has this uh, strong strand in him that ultimately comes down from Plato, which talks about the natural desire for God in every human, which is, of course, besmirched by sin and not just by sexual sin. Um, in fact, according to the Augustinian tradition, which Thomas inherits, um the core problem of sin is a problem of desire gone wrong. (laughs) And I think we may come back to that later. In what exact way has desire gone wrong in the story of the fall? The the Christian tradition has never been united in an answer to that question. Um, But most Christians know that there's something absolutely fundamental in the nature of sin that's to do with what Augustine called concupiscence, um, which is one of his words for for desire. It's a negative word for desire. So when I say that um, desire is the fundamental constellation of my anthropology, it it is the case that I want it as my most basic positive feature of anthropology insofar as it is rightly directed at God. But I also want to use it as the focus for discovering what's wrong with us as well. (laughs) How sin Gets either misdirected or misaggregated, as I prefer. Um,
0: Maybe now we can pivot to the relationship in your thinking between um, desire and Trinity. So, what would be a, a, a trinitarian ontology of desire?
1: That's one of my favorite phrases. It <laughs> slips nicely off your tongue, <laughs> Brandon. Um, all right, this is also non-obvious, I think, to many Christians, um, and. Uh, This is because I'm drawing here on an idea that um, really only became, I think, started to become clarified in the Christian tradition, although it was sort of implicit before that, but became clarified in a remarkable text of the early sixth century by someone called Dionysius the Areopagite, um, your friend and mine, um, who is probably the most influential and important um, Neoplatonist Christian of his period and was going to go on to have the most almost incalculable influence, both on the Byzantine East and on the Scholastic West, who received him slightly differently. But there's a really amazing moment in his text called The Divine Names in chapter four, when he's talking about the nature of God as going out and returning, um, this platonic idea of exodus and reditus. The idea that the divine divine life has this capacity to go out of itself in an ecstasy of longing for the created order and then to return those who respond to it um, in transformed um, and in cooperative and participatory ways. Now, it's rather interesting that uh, Dionysius in this text, who is borrowing heavily from a Neoplatonic author called Proclus, who comes just before him in the fifth century, doesn't actually, in this particular um, moment in the Divine Names, theorize this outgoing and returning in specifically Trinitarian terms. Um, But he does theorize it in explicitly ecstatic and eroticized terms. And um, Later authors, and now me included in a particular variation on this, wish to urge that the activity of the Trinity, the life of the Trinity, the divine life of the Trinity, add extra, as it is said, as disclosing itself to, to the human world and the created order, is not only expressing this divine ontology, <laughs> but it's expressing it in the form of Father, Son and Spirit, the Spirit is is that which, as it were, lures us into the life of Christ. And as we stand alongside Christ in in our contemplation, in our prayer, we then um, pray alongside the Son to the Father, who is the ultimate source in God. This is, of course, by the way, if if you're picking this up, this is the vision of prayer that we get in Romans chapter 8 in Paul's wonderful exordium on how we can pray at all, where Paul says, you know, actually, humanly, we can't. (laughs) It's it's done by the Spirit in us, and we have to make place for the Spirit, um, for the the Spirit's size too deep for words, so that we may join in the sufferings and glories of the life of Christ and relate to the Father through the lens of the Son. So, uh, just to go back to where you first asked this excellent question, um, in, the ca- quest, in the case of Dionysius's account of why God is ultimate desire, he is very clear that unlike human desires, which always indicate some kind of lack, in the case of God, there is no lack in his desiring because God is perfect fullness, perfect plenitude. His going out in ecstasy to us doesn't, is not because he needs something, it's because it is in his very ontological makeup to be the desiring God who longs for his created order and longs to um, return that created order into the pure intimacy for which with him which he intended. So you have to do a bit of exegetical work with the help of Dionysius and the successors on the one hand and the biblical and later heritage of Trinitarian thought on the other, to put this notion of desire and the notion of the Trinity together, which I just suggested here. There's nothing unorthodox about this. It just may sound familiar. In fact, it's extraordinarily orthodox. It's just not necessarily the language that you may have been brought up with when talking about the Trinity. And the important thing is not to misunderstand it, not to imagine that... um, this means that God, as it were, needs us to complete Himself. That that mm-hmm. is not being said here.
0: So that brings up an interesting point, right there. Uh, why did this sort of language get lost? Do you think?
1: Okay, that's a really big question. Um, I've um, there's a partial answer to it in in a book that I co-edited called "Rethinking Dionysius the Areopagite," mm-hmm. where we actually. Um, people involved in that edited book, we look at what happened to this story of the reception of Dionysius um, East and West, and particularly the Reformation. And Luther in particular um, was highly critical of Dionysius, um, partly because he saw him as a sort of mystical elitist author, um, which is partly true and partly not true, actually. The funny thing is that actually, at the same time as explicitly rejecting this tradition, um, it is argued in this book, um, in a wonderful article by someone called Peter Malish, that that Luther actually continues to be strongly um, influenced by him, ironically, and that you could see, you could say, you know, that Luther's doctrine of grace, you know, still maintains something of this dynamic, um, but this particular language of Trinity as ontology of desire has as it were not been to the center of of fashion i would say um uh maybe i've revived it <laughs> but i certainly haven't made it up <laughs> i've given it i've given it some new i hope highly contemporary excitement to it because as i mentioned at the beginning living as we do in a in a culture saturated with, with messages of desire and saturated by pornographic images and so on and so forth, we are faced with a question of what God has got to do with this and what what, what this has got to do with the great story of divine salvation and sanctification. And it's that that I'm trying to re-explore. And um, I think... If I may anticipate what I know is your next question. Um, because in our in our culture, we're also not just um, saturated with images of sexual desire, but also tremendously anxious about questions of gender. Um, I, I believe that approaching the Trinity in this way actually has a very creative. Um, and transformative effect in how we might think about some of the issues that most divide us in our culture and in our churches about questions of gender and sexuality.
0: Yeah, that's good. So one thing I wanted you to work out a little bit is a theme, I think, in all of your work. It shines through you mentioned Romans eight and and just the life of prayer and contemplation and worship that's necessary for good theology. And I think that's something that doesn't always come through, especially in more academic sort of writing. So maybe walk me through what do these sorts of things have to do with good theology?
1: Right. Um, this is also a very fundamental plank in my systematic approach. Um, the, in the 4th century, there was a remarkable monastic author called Evagrius, Evagrius of Pontus. He was a kind of systematizer. Of the desert tradition, and one of his most famous sayings is: "Is the theologian is the one who rightly prays, and the one who rightly prays is the theologian." <laughs> and picking up from that, what I'm trying to argue or get back into the centre of the picture is that prayer, and especially prayer of a of a, of a simple sort, um, of a, an attentive contemplative sort that stands, as it were, naked without, <laughs> without pretense before God. That is the context in which we may best learn how to speak rightly of God. <laughs> because to speak rightly of God, is, as theologians, is not, is not just to be able to uh, do clever criticism of what other people have said about God, and especially not to um, try and talk about God as if God was another item in the universe, a very big one, of course, the biggest one, <laughs> the creator. But I think this is one of the biggest, the biggest spiritual hurdles that anyone as a Christian ever has to get over. The idea that when we approach God in prayer, we we are standing before that without which there would be nothing at all. <laughs> um, and what is the appropriate posture? <laughs> Of standing before that without which there would be nothing at all. It's not idolatrously thinking of God as a very large parental figure or a, or a judge or a threat. It's actually to go on an adventure in which those idolatries are gradually, as it were, burnt out of us. And um, By the way, Calvin is amazingly good on this topic. If you look at his commentary on Romans, on Romans chapter 8, he says this about what the whole life of prayer in the spirit is. It's the slaying of idolatry. idolatry. (laughs) So that, as he puts it fascinatingly, we no longer think of God as a punitive father, but we begin to understand God as truly that loving father of Jesus with whom we're standing um, in this posture. Um so um prayer isn't an optional extra for theology, nor is it a sort of anti-intellectual lurch. I think some people who you know say, well, why don't you pray rather than think? They're 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 sort of suggesting that um uh when we pray we are um um are we stopped, we stopped as it were, intellectually attuning ourselves. Um nor is it, um, nor, nor, nor is prayer, as it were, some kind of special experience that we can hypostasize and separate and add to other authorities in the theological task. Sometimes, quite wrongly, that's how Methodism is perceived. You know that you have the authority of Scripture, the authority of, um, of. Uh, tradition and of reason, and then you add the fourth leg, as it's sometimes called, which is experience. That's not what I'm after. Nor, again, am I wanting to say that there's a special elite kind of people who are contemplatives, who, um, you know, live in either very intellectual circumstances, very privileged circumstances, presumably white circumstances, or in monasteries. Um, That's all complete Nonsense, as far as I'm concerned, in relation to the task of of, of contemplation. Anyone can contemplate. (laughs) It's great, even if you can't read, you can contemplate. (laughs) Um, No, the task of theology should be done in the context in which we are learning over a lifetime (laughs) to find ourselves in union with that without which. We would not be here. And that's a dizzying undertaking. It's not surprising that it's intellectually peculiar. (laughs) Um, And theology ought to be intellectually peculiar, in my view.
0: So along these lines, we've talked about desire, we've talked about trinity, and, and you've mentioned the issue of gender. And I think probably most people view gender now as a very controversial topic, as you've mentioned, and you try to fashion this desire as very relevant for gender. So what is desire's relevance for gender? And how is that relevant, I guess, for Trinity, incarnation, those sorts of things? And just a note for you listeners, we lost about 10 to 15 seconds worth of audio here in the next two minute clip. So if you notice a skip, it's definitely not her. It would be our recording software. So we do apologize for that, but we think you get the gist of it. And I do recommend you check out our book on the topic to fill in any gaps you see.
1: Right. This is a very big topic because there's no um, agreement necessarily about what gender is. So I'm going to have to just pause for a moment and talk about that. For some people in sort of postmodern gender theory, um, gender what culture does to um, slice humanity down the middle and insist that you either have to be on the male side or the female side. No exceptions. <laughs> and um, the idea is to, as in some ways, to remake it or escape it um, or challenge it. That's one approach to gender, which you may find to be very um, attractive and popular these days in, say, queer theory or trans theory. At the other end of the spectrum, we might say we have fairly conservative, even fundamentalistic renditions of the Bible in which gender is the right and proper. The question question is when these these? two completely different theories um, meet and uh, head on, then this is when we get a great deal of trouble about how to think about gender. I'm uh, asked to think about it, actually. Um, And that is to place the notion of gender in the, as it were, the crucible of the vision of how human desire, which I've already spelled out. And on this view, gender becomes, as it were, less significant than desire still matters, but in In my view, gender gender is not stuck. That doesn't mean that there's a third third gender rather than two. I'm I'm just saying saying that it ambushes us um, through divine (laughs) divine desire, which causes us to rethink gender as not static, not stuck.
0: So when we think about the Trinity ambushing gender and desire and those sorts of things, what would you say that looks like concretely? Because I imagine a lot of our listeners... When they think about gender, they think of all these concrete, specific examples and areas. So what does that look like when we try to think about it in the real world?
1: Well, just think how much anxiety is caused for people who don't feel that they fit what is expected of them in terms of gender performativity. Um, And what I'm trying to say here is, what if you... Stop trying to decide what your precise identity was according to some set of boxes called LBGTXXXX, you know, all these ones that we've created. What if that was not the main problem? What if the main problem or the main delight or the main issue was how you went on a journey in relation to God (laughs) in a story about the transformation of desire? (laughs) And that's the story. That's the way I'm talking about the story of sanctification. And um, this isn't, of course, a let it all hang out approach, which sometimes people also mishear. It doesn't mean you can do anything you jolly well like. Um, it, it's, it's to do with a much more profound and testing idea of bringing all your desires, not just sexual desires, but all your desires into, into some space, uh, a kind of uh, crucible of, of sorting and transformation and purification. Now, if you start to think about the human life of identity in Christ like that, and not of, now, which are you? I'd like to know. Are you lesbian? Are you trans? You know, what what is it are you? Um, Which has caused so much agony in our culture, partly, I think, because we don't bring God into that discussion, (laughs) But if what we're interested in is being returned in our lifetime to union with Christ, which is the birthright of our baptism, can we let some of that identity to fall away a bit? Um, of course we can't if the world is constantly pressing on us and persecuting us. But it should be within the, the language of, the, of transformation in the Trinity and identification with the life of Christ that we overcome those those terrible um, anxieties and per- mutual persecutions. It may not then matter so much, quite not so much. Of course, it will continue to matter because we are relational embodied beings. <laughs> it's all, ma- Gender is always going to matter, both what people think we are and what we think we are. It's not doing away with gender, but it's placing gender within a context in which, for instance, if if someone declares themselves trans, this does not cause them, as I've just encountered pastorally, to be to be someone who has to get uh, chucked out of their Roman Catholic parochial school. <laughs> that shouldn't be happening. <laughs> um, or if I have to come to terms with my um, homosexuality, for instance, uh, or if I have to um, come to terms with the, the fact that I am undergoing some... Enormous change in my gender sensibility at some period in my life, perhaps very unexpectedly. This is, as it were, held within the context of of the more fundamental ontology of divine desire. That's the idea. Um, Now, as pastors um, and theologians, you know, we, we could talk a lot more about how that how thinking that way might make a difference to how we respond to pastoral crises here and i think that's quite a creative way of thinking
0: yeah so that's helpful and i think i mean for those i i think most of our listeners probably i don't know 70 to 75% are probably coming from the background of you know if there's a spectrum of beliefs on this topic they're more conservative on that end how would that speak to them? So people who, you know, they feel, they probably feel uncomfortable with any room for discussion on this. How is it that this can help them be more tender and kind and generous to other people and the struggles that they experience without, I guess, is there a way that they can do this without giving up their their commitments? So they, they have a firm commitment to saying, well, You know, when we think about sexuality, we want to say that homosexuality is a sin or that there is just male and female. But how can they maintain those and yet uh, be more generous towards other people who who struggle with these sorts of things?
1: Well, again, I would tend to reach for my um, fundamental matrix, which is that of um becoming ever more vulnerable to the love of god in the activity of prayer the the, the problem is that we can use the practices of prayer to keep our prejudices unfortunately <laughs> whether they be gendered prejudices or racial prejudices or whatever there's there's no doubt that the repetitions of prayer can simply become the repetitions of stuckness But if we're engaged in forms of prayer in which we are willing constantly to be surprised by the spirit's activity, (laughs) then that to me is the context in which all kinds of doors are open to rethinking um, uh, places where we ourselves may be um, much less than compassionate in the way that I think Jesus presents to us as a compassionate person. Jesus on sex and gender is simultaneously the most demanding teacher and the most compassionate of failure. It's a very striking phenomenon, I think. And I I think people need to just go into that paradox. Um, And then it's also interesting that in Jesus' teaching, he uses money almost more than any other metaphor for testing our desires in his parables, if you think about it. He has much more to say about money than he has to say about sex. And so in my own preaching, I try to present that to, to to my people as a really interesting point of reflection. Again, to try and bring two sorts of very fundamental desire into a similar place and see how they um, mutually infect or transform each other.
0: Yeah. So we talked, I guess, at the very beginning, we mentioned that you've got a new volume that you're working on on racism and race and things that are related to that. Can you share some of your core insights that you've unearthed, that you're working on, that you're finding thus far? Because I think obviously this is a huge topic, at least in America and probably other countries too, And we need careful, compassionate thinking about it. And there seems to be a lot of polarization related to this topic as well. So what are the core insights that you've unearthed in this area?
1: Well, here are a few bullet points. And I I have to admit that this is going to be an extremely controversial book. Um, First, because it's written by a, a white woman with a British accent who's attempting to throw light on the history of American racism. Um, But secondly, because I'm saying some things that I don't think other people are saying and they're unfamiliar and they can therefore be misunderstood in one way or the other as offensive. So here goes. Um, First and foremost, this isn't a book about the ontologizing of race as such, because as many people now agree, especially after the genome, um, race itself Isn't an ontological category, it's it's a it's a historically produced category, which is then utilized in usually in forms of racism. All right, so let's just get that cleared out of the way. I know that's controversial to some people still, but so I'm interested in how different forms of racism, and there are different forms, they're not the same everywhere all around the world. I can tell you that with some personal conviction, since I grew up in a part of South London, which had a very large number of afro caribbean people who flooded in there um, in the 1950s, the so-called Windrush generation. I then spent a year teaching in Southern Africa in a, in a very impoverished little country called Lesotho, which is surrounded by, by South Africa during the apartheid system. And then I had for nearly half of my life now lived at different times in North America. These all have interconnections um, because the great sort of Western stories of race and racialism perhaps started to take their modern forms as far back as the 16th century and then went from there into different historical contexts. So there's family resemblance. But I'm interested in the underlying relationship of different forms of racism to the phenomenon of sin that 's my first my first interest in this book because already to say that is um, to invite a lot of misunderstanding many people who talk about racism as a sin like Hillary Clinton for instance used to talk about racism as the original sin and I think that's extremely misleading <laughs> um, I see the original sin as some kind of misaggregation of desire it's 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 not it's not necessarily a desire for the wrong thing in the story of the fall. What could be better than to long to be discerning of good and evil, right? that That's a good thing to want to be. It's to become more truly in the image of God. And yet it's a misaggregation because by by grasping that to separate oneself from God rather than to unionize oneself with God was the mistake, you might say. So that's the concupiscence, the fundamental tinder in the the box of sin. But it's the second moment in the story of the fall that I want want to concentrate on here. Um, And that's the moment, if you remember, where where Adam and Eve are caught out. And what results is immediately a change in their perception. They, They see they're naked, right? So they see the world differently. They see their bodies differently. And it's actually at that point that a very significant to advert back to the previous discussion about gender, very significant presumptions about gender roles get rehearsed in the story um, in the condition of, 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 of the fall. But it's also the moment at which they are, in their new separation from God, they are shamed. And in the state of shame, they blame. They hide away from their own shame by casting aspersions on the other. It was the woman. It was the, it was the snake, um, etc. And so this human propulsion to need an other blame in order to divert my attention from my own shame is the moment in the sort of the story of, of sin um, that I want to concentrate on as particularly significant for how racism is underlyingly undergirded by that propulsion it's a kind of it's a kind of psychological argument um it's actually not very far away from in a in a non-theological form from um james baldwin's writing on in this area i don't know whether you know um his wonderful f- the film about him called i am not your negro which you can which you can watch on netflix i've watched it about 17 times it's an amazing film and at, towards the end of it he says you know Americans, if they, if, they hadn't, if they hadn't had a Negro, they would have had to invent one <laughs> because the, the sort of miracle, this is the historical part of it now, the miracle of bringing people from all around the world and sort of somehow mediating all their differences, even despite great poverty and competition for land and so on and so forth, was at the same time predicated on the need for an other to blame, for an other to be somehow slightly subhuman. Um, and there is an absolutely chilling strand in the history of American racism that's been completely forgotten that happens at, after the Civil War and during the period of the birth of social science in America, where there was a very serious argument made that the serpent in Genesis 3 was actually a black man, and that um, because, because the black man there represents someone who's not quite human, um, but at the same time is kind of crafty and um, out to get you, um, this is really appalling. And you can see why the, the memory of this has been suppressed. Um, but historians of science have virtually uh, rediscovered this, this strand. Now, I'm saying, of course, that... Those stories of the Negro, the Black man, are themselves a manifestation of this profounder uh, um, phenomenon of what I call the second moment of the fall: <laughs> the need to blame, the need to blame, the need to have another, the need to have another who isn't quite human, who isn't, who isn't quite, in fact, may even deserve death. Um, and that I am proposing is a place to start thinking theologically, again, about racism, theologically. Now, it has one very disturbing outcome, of course, and that is that if racism has its roots in a feature of um, original sin, then it must be affecting us all, not just white people, all right? Now, no one wants to hear this (laughs) for very obvious reasons. So I then have to give an account of how this propulsion is, of course, historically inflected in very particular forms of racism, um, such that a power differential then creates circumstances in which the, um, the blaming of the other takes very different forms, depending on whether you are on the power side or the disempowered side. But what I want to say is that racism racisms, always affect all of us, <laughs> but they affect the, the abused underdog out of another kind of stuckness, which is the stuckness, understandable stuckness of fury and rage and resentment at being treated like a non-human. Right? So we're all affected all the way down by this incapacity to acknowledge each other in which, and we could see this as sort of the opposite of the state of being united in Christ. And I, I love Willie Jennings of Yale's fundamental definition of racism, which is that it's what tragically robs us of our unity in Christ. I think that's a beautiful theological account of racism. Now, of course, you haven't solved a lot of the problems here because... American racism has a very particular history, which is culturally learned. But whereas nowadays people talk a lot about systemic racism as if it was a sort of ineradicable um, white supremacist urge, <laughs> um, I'm thinking of books like um, D'Angelo's book on white fragility, which exposes the denial um, of white um um, prejudice, but then at the end of the book, just leaves everybody lying in the dust in a state of shame. It doesn't. It doesn't provide any hope, any theological vision of possible transformation and reconciliation. And I think that's where we are at the moment in this country. This is what you said earlier that that, that the binary of racism is actually becoming more intense. Um and um, this is further fueled, of course, by certain strands in in uh race critical theory um so that 's my first move that 's my first move um, my second, which is a big one, and it takes a lot of t- i have to take a lot of time on different classical renditions of the story of the four, on which there's never been a complete unity of um, of hermeneutic east and west or indeed even within the east and the west um, and then but then secondly, when I try to turn to um, what on earth could begin to ameliorate this condition. I focus particularly on not only the shame element, but also the anger-blame element, and with that, the um, sensual and visual distortion of our perceptions which accompanies this state of sin. And if you ask who in the tradition, the the Western Christian tradition, helps us with thinking about sin as a perceptual, sensual problem. One of the most significant figures is John of the Cross, um, because he has a whole program, the Carmelites, John of the Cross and Teresa, have a whole program of spiritual transformation through contemplation, which involves attending first to our denial about our sin and our beginning to understand our sensual perceptual incapacity through sin, through as it were, allowing the spirit to operate in us to start to cleanse our perceptions. Um, indeed, I do a I do an analysis in, in a number of essays and in the book um, about how these terrible stories of the murdering of young black men by policemen, sometimes of course by by non-white policemen, but these, these seem to involve some, some really disturbing forms of visual perception, which, which don't allow the perpetrator to see the person they are murdering as a real person. Um, it, I mean, it's otherwise extraordinarily morally puzzling, isn't it? Um, so um, the second move, therefore, is actually the ameliorative theological move. You know, the the discussion about under what conditions can um, the activity of salvation shift what can only be shifted by God? (laughs) Because there is so much what we can do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do all the things we're trying to do politically, economically, socially. All those other analyses are fundamentally needed for change. But we've reached a point in the history of racism in this country where many Black people especially would say that the civil rights movement has failed, which means that everything that we hoped we could achieve simply by good moral and political intentions seems to be still undermined by something deeper and more problematic that often we claim we can't even see at all. And my other hero in this part of the book, alongside the Carmelites, is um, is Howard Thurman whose work I'm sure you will know, very remarkable 20th century Afro-American preacher and writer and spiritual guide, um, whose great writings on prayer are all about the, as a black man, are all about the letting go of what he calls his accumulations, his accumulations of intense resentment and and pain and um, uh, constant Prejudicial misuse. Um, so he himself sees the contemplative act as that place in which that place in only place, in fact, ultimately in which in which healing of this sort can occur. And then the third bit of the book that's very surprising is is about is about another terribly controversial topic, which is the very notion of darkness. Um, now, there are many liberal theologians who would like to, uh, especially black ones, but 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 also many white ones, who would like to do away with the whole metaphor of darkness, um, um, especially as it relates to sin in the biblical corpus and beyond, because they rightly see that there's a slide that's happening all the time between darkness as sin and darkness as racialized darkness. And it's precisely that elision that results in the kind of misreading of the story of the fall that turns the serpent into the black man. All right. But there's a third kind of darkness in the tradition, which I'm I'm majoring in thinking about. And I think you can probably see where this is going. And this is divine darkness. The darkness of which it says in the Psalms that darkness is God's secret place, Um, the place in which God undoes the darkness of sin through direct purgative contact with God's transcendent power and otherness. And this also links to the theme of darkness in the Song of Songs, where the dark one is the lovely one, the loveliest one, not not the simple one. So I'm not urging, like many people, that we need to take out our our paintbrush, and paint out all mentions of darkness. I, I'm i saying that we need to disambiguate these different meanings and then refigure them in such a way that actually divine darkness becomes the supreme form of darkness and the supreme good form of darkness, which is met in contemplation, where deep forms of purgation and transformation occur.
0: So do you have a timeline for when you hope <laughs> or expect this to release?
1: Uh, well, I finished it. Just before George Floyd was murdered, and then I had to start again. Um, mm. And so, at the moment, I'm having to I'm putting out some preliminary essays, but I'm I'm having to I'm having to reframe the book. Just as in my first volume of Systematics, there is a large framing first section where I look at different views about sexuality and gender and argue that the approach that I'm bringing is not quite the same. <laughs> um, yeah. I've got to do the same. I've got to I've got to do a, actually a sort of categorization and typologization of current thinking about race and racism, both theological and non-theological, and then try and indicate how this might just shift the kaleidoscope in a way that I hope might be creative. Um, and you can tell from what I've said that but many people are not going to like this at all for lots of different reasons, and I just have to have to live with that. You know, it's what I'm what I want to say. And it certainly hasn't come out of merely academic, white-centered thinking. It's it's come out of very profound encounters with um with not only black colleagues, but actually where it all started was when I was. For a short period, a chaplain in a Boston jail, and was deputed to spend an hour a week with a group of men, all of whom were black or Latino, um, uh, in silence. In silence. This wasn't my idea, um, and the extraordinary, the extraordinarily powerful impact of that on me which I tell the story of in the book it's it's the part of the book which is my fieldwork part because each of these each of these volumes has a fieldwork part first of all it blew away my failure to see what was going on in um in in the very hidden and profound racism of boston it's one of the one of the places where the whole system is most hidden but secondly And so it ripped me open. So it's partly a story of my discovery, of my complicitness in this system. But it's also a story about what the men said about how they perceived what was happening in this activity, which is really, really amazing. And how they found that this act of solidarity together in the jail uh, was itself one of the most powerful ways of bucking the system of abuse and um, and violence that the jail constantly surrounded them with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think of your work as some of the most creative uh, theology out there, which is why I really appreciate it, because I feel like I'm learning and being stretched and challenged to think in different ways, opening up new imaginative possibilities. So I really appreciate um, the work that you're doing and I'm thankful for it because it's helped me to think clearly about some of the issues that I'm trying to understand rightly. So thank you for joining us and talking to us about this. I think this has been fascinating and hopefully it's been helpful for our listeners. I imagine it has. And obviously you've got a website. Um, where if they Google uh, Sarah Coakley, they can find you there and find your work that's being posted there so they can read more of it. Uh, We'll link to a good amount of it here in the show notes as well so that you can have direct links to it. I'll link to your website too. So if you're interested for further reading, uh, you can go there. And I commend you to read it because I think you'll be challenged as well. Uh, Whether you agree or disagree, I like theology that stretches you and pushes you to think. And I think Dr. Coakley's is an example of that. So for everybody who's been listening, we appreciate you tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.